a simple plea against apostasy. So he focuses in on several things. Number one, I want to point out to you this primitive plea or the primitive nature of that. And what I mean by that is that in reality, faith in Jesus Christ is a very simple thing. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, because there we find a very um, important parallel passage, a really sort of a commentary on everything that Hebrews is talking about. The threat of apostasy, the danger of false teachers, the danger of a false gospel, and the zeal, the jealousy that the Apostle Paul exhibits right here in 2 Corinthians of paralleling what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's jealous over the people that they will maintain faith in Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 1, he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul often boasts in what he calls a little foolishness because he doesn't want to boast, but he often is compelled to do that. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He says, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, he says, you bear this beautifully. Now, that's an interesting phrase there, you bear this beautifully. It is a sarcastic, ironic phrase. It is meant to sort of be a slap on the face of a church that is flirting with apostasy. And that is exactly if we sort of uh, look at Paul's sarcastic words there at the end of this passage is exactly what the audience of Hebrews, the church of Hebrews, stands to win or lose. They, sort of, they would be bearing beautifully if, through an evil and unbelieving heart, they would fall away from the gospel. They would fall away from Christ, and they would go back to the old covenant to bring it to the context of the book of Hebrews. That Remember, that is what the book of Hebrews is all about. The book of Hebrews is that the blood of Jesus has done so much, it has fulfilled all of the shadows of the Old Testament. It has completed all of the prophecies. It has brought to pass the Davidic covenant. It has brought to bear the Abrahamic covenant. It has fulfilled the institutions of Israel, the sacrifices, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, all of it, the temple, all of it. And now to leave that, and to leave the fulfillment, to leave the reality, and to go back to the shadows would be a step in a disastrous direction. So the author of Hebrews is saying, do not turn away. As he says in chapter 10, do not cast aside your confidence. So the reason I love Hebrews is because it's a, it's a relentless call to perseverance, isn't it? Just relentless. The author of Hebrews is just continually, importunately, he's just pounding away at this church and saying, stay, stay where you are, hold fast, stand fast. 
firm, persevere until the end. I don't know about you, but that's what I need in my life, in this race that we're in. I need somebody, I need a, I need a coach who's following me down the path of the race and saying, hang in there, stick it out, don't give up, don't give in. These are little reminders, kind of like you see the marathon runners and someone runs alongside them and hands them a little cup, right? Just a quick little hydration so they can keep going. But that is exactly what the book of Hebrews is, is every interval, every reminder, every exhortation. It's like that refreshing little cup of water that God is saying, here, stay hydrated on the Word of God so that you do not fall short of it. And so Paul's words here, very much remin- or, uh, the he- Hebrews words here, very much reminiscent of Paul's words in Corinthians. The unbelief of Hebrews is not simply brought on through a personal struggle or sheer unbelief, but it is always connected to something. Isn't that the way apostasy works? Apostasy is not a brute fact. You know what I mean by that? A brute fact is something that stands on its own. It's a self-evident thing. It, is, it doesn't have any contingencies or anything attached to it. But that is not the way that apostasy works. It is always coupled with disobedience and unbelief and a pattern of sin. It is always coupled with some sort of, of uh, sinful behavior. Nobody wakes up living a wonderful, beautiful Christian life where you are just refreshed in the Lord. Oh, you're just skipping along the Christian life. Okay, I know it's not like that. Just bear with me. You're, you're abiding in Christ. You're worshiping. You're in the Spirit. And you just wake up one day and say, you know what? I don't want to live this life anymore. It doesn't happen like that. The children of Israel in the wilderness generation, remember, it was one small compromise at a time. It was grumbling, a little subtle complaining. It was an undermining of the Word of God. It was a disbelieving in the covenant faithfulness of God. It was attacking the, the, the servant of God, Moses. It was all of these things that eventually led to God saying, if you look at verse 11, God saying in His wrath, they will not enter my rest. In other words, they disqualified themselves from entering into the promised land, Canaan. Now, translation for you and I. We are not entering Canaan. We are entering the heavenly Canaan. We are entering the heavenly Jerusalem. We we, we have fixed our sight on Zion. That's where we're headed. But as with any church, it It needs its exhortations. It needs its reminders. Peter says, I stir you up by way of reminder. If you ever read the book of Hebrews, you think, man, it's getting a little bit redundant because of these constant reminders of apostasy, the need to persevere, the need to have faith. That's right, because that is what we need is to be reminded. So there is just a simple, primitive plea against apostasy that is set out for us right here. And in verse 13, we see this encouragement. He says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See that word hardened? That is a, that is a condition that progresses subtly. And therefore, because there is a progression of hardening that can take place, we also need a continuing and an 
abiding exhortation, admonishment, encouragement, whatever we need. Accountability in the body of Christ. I have more to say on that. But what follows here in verses 14 and 15 is a conditional promise of partaking of Christ through faith as, um, as a simple plea against apostasy. And so let's look at this promise. The promise of participation in Christ. Because after all, that is what he says. Look at the verse again. Chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. If, and that word if is probably the most important word in the verse. If, that's a big if. We, he says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is, a, this is a mammoth text, and this is nuclear strength for your Christian life right here, to feel the weight of this exhortation, to come under the fear and the warning and the threat. This is one of the reasons why when I was thinking about the book of Hebrews and preaching the book of Hebrews, I thought, we need this because we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is sovereign and He keeps us and, and He will preserve us and He will protect us. And I've taught lengthy passages on that, stressing the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But what Hebrews does, you know what Hebrews does? It takes the Calvinist out of the, the cage stage, right? It kind of it, it tapers us a little bit with, with, with wisdom. and say, look, yes, God is able to preserve you to the end, but it will not happen unless you persevere. So there's that tension, and we'll come back to that tension over and over again. But I want to set forth Christ. Church should be the place where you come to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Church is the place where you ought to come and feast on Christ. Jesus said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? You have no part in me. What is he talking about there? Cannibalism? Of course not. Jesus' metaphor is we need to be imbibing Christ. We need to be internalizing the Son of God by faith. How do we do that but other than focus on Christ? Look unto Christ. We've already saw that. Look back at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling. Watch this. This is the whole Christian life right here in two words. Consider Jesus. Do you walk around your house considering Jesus? Do you walk around in your home at night? Are you, do you have a book in your hand? Do you have your Bible in your hand? Are you considering Jesus, looking unto Jesus, focusing on Jesus? Have your gaze on Jesus. It's the only way we're going to make it. Feasting, a perpetual feasting on Jesus Christ, a, a, a true treasuring of Jesus in our hearts. I like what a book that I read by um, Charles Leiter. He started out his book by saying, Christianity is Christ. Oh, I love that. My heart just, I resonate with things like that. Bit of an overstatement, but I like it. Because it's saying, if you want to know the essence of the Christian faith, it is Jesus. 
You having problems in your walk? Are you struggling? It is as simple as asking yourself, is there love to the unseen Christ in your heart? Are you loving Jesus? People think it's so complicated. It's all this theology and things and stuff Emilio says from the pulpit. I have no idea what he's talking about. How about this? Sunday school level. Well, I don't know. Some Sunday schools get kind of complicated. Loving Jesus. What did Jesus say? Some of the most profound things that our Savior said was, if you love me, you obey my commands. It's that simple. The Christian life is that simple. And no amount of excuses, no amount of interpretation, no amount of complication can overthrow that simple principle that if you are not obedient, you are not loving that if you're not walking with Christ and obeying Christ, that means you're not loving Christ. You're not intoxicated with Christ. You are not infatuated. You are not in obsessed with Jesus Christ. No wonder you're obsessed with other things. No wonder you can't get over the hump in your marriage. Because you are not in love with Jesus. If you were in love with Jesus, you would obey him. There's something about this passage that's so interesting to me. Verse 14, it's assumed, and I want to kind of draw out that assumption. For we have become partakers of Christ if, and then this condition. The question is, is what does it mean to partake of Christ? Because he sets it out as gain, Right? You will stand to gain if you are a partaker of Christ. But that assumes that Jesus is valuable, that he is a treasure. To use the parable of the Lord Jesus himself, the treasure hidden in the field that a person will sell everything in order to buy the field and get the treasure at all costs. Something like that means it is of infinite value. And so Jesus is of infinite value. But when has he proven that in the letter? I would say we have to go back to chapter 1. So you ready for a little recap? And we see the value of Christ in various ways. We see the treasure that Jesus is. If you've been uh, following along in the exposition of this book, it's already been set out before us. So let me give you several factors that set Jesus out in front of us as infinitely valuable, infinitely glorious, okay? Number one, his redemptive supremacy, going back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There we learned about Jesus and his redemptive glory, redemptive supremacy. You remember what he's saying there, God after he spoke long ago. So that's taking us back to Old Testament history. To the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. You think he's trying to drive something home here? He's, he's really trying to make us historians here at the point, at this point, right? He's, he's really trying to make us under, you know, appreciate what God did in the OT. That he did all this stuff in all these places and to all these people. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, 
who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So, point number one, Jesus is valuable because of his, his redemptive supremacy. Uh, if you, what is the book of Hebrews about? Thirteen chapters. You know what the whole book's about? The whole book is about verses one through three in chapter one. One through three is basically the prologue of the entire book. If you really get verses one through three, you'll know the book of Hebrews because this is what the whole book of Hebrews is about, his redemptive supremacy. Now, I want to deal with this phrase, partakers of Christ, because I think we also need to understand what does it mean to be a partaker of Christ? Because this word uh, metakos that's used here can have different senses, but it literally means that we partake of him in an intimate fashion, that we have an interest in him, especially a salvific interest. Uh, and that's exactly what it means, that we have a salvific interest in Jesus Christ. It's so amazing to me what this passage is saying. He is reminding us, look, you can rest assured that you are saved in Christ, but not apart from holding fast the, uh, uh, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Isn't that amazing? The very thing that we want, don't we want this? We want to know, conversion, was it genuine, was it not genuine? Many of you struggle with this. Many of you have been in turmoil over this very issue of assurance. And I think we all go through it at some point in our Christian life. We want to know, am I genuinely saved? We want to know, am I going to hear those, what words am I going to hear on that day? Enter in, good and faithful servant, the joy of the Lord, or Depart from me, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Oh, that's, the Christian life is deadly serious. That's why I can't even comprehend how pastors get in the pulpit and all they want to do is crack jokes and, you know, six flags over Jesus and light, fickle, sort of weightless Christianity. It's unbelievable to me. Do we know what it is that we stand to either gain or lose? Everything, everything. And so the book of Hebrews is saying this assurance that we want so desperately, it only comes through your personal perseverance. See, these are the verses that we have to be careful with because we either land on, oh, Emilio was teaching that you're, you're, you can't be saved unless it's dependent on your effort. So it's almost like salvation through works. no. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, where, you know where my theology is, but there is a tension. I'll come back to that. The second way that we see the value of Christ, however, was also through his divine exaltation. Remember, go back to chapter 1, verse 7. We saw this divine exaltation there. It says, he makes his, uh, excuse me, verse 6, he says, the firstborn, he brings him into the world, and he says, let all the angels of God worship him. That is divine exaltation. This is a Davidic promise that speaks way beyond David. This is talking about the messianic seed of David, which is Jesus Christ. And to him, all worship, all, um, all um, homage is to be paid to him. 
And his divine exaltation is also seen in his royal enthronement. You know, many of the Psalms, many of the Psalms are written about the enthroned Christ. I love it. I am of the conviction that every psalm is about Christ in one way, shape, or form, or another. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And he will only, he will, not only will he, is he exalted and worshipped by angels, but he also rules his people with righteousness, verses 8 through 9. But also this, not only his divine exaltation, but also his sovereign enthronement. Look at verses uh, 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. If you ever get discouraged looking at the media and what you see, we talked about Islam today in Sunday school, and we could get so discouraged looking at what we're seeing in the Middle East and things that are going on out there. And, you know, uh, but it's a good reminder for us to remember the sovereign enthronement of Jesus Christ, which also makes him of infinite value because. Here we are told that He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He, he is sovereign over the beginning of all things as He lays the foundation of the earth and He outlasts the earth. He is also sovereign over the end of all things because it says He will roll up the universe like a garment. He's going to roll it all up, which means He's going to bring it all to an end. Jesus is sovereign over all the ages. Every age, every epoch, every dispensation of time, Jesus has been its author, its theme, and its purpose. He, his centrality in God's plan of redemption is brought to completion with Jesus reigning over the stage of creation where the drama of redemption has been unfolding. Jesus is not only pictured as sovereign over time and history, he is also pictured as sovereign over his enemies. Look at verse 13. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he is sovereign over all of our enemies. And this kind of makes, it reminds us who is on our side. Who is on our side is the one who will have the final victory in the history of the world. Isn't that glorious? The nations rage, Psalm 2 says. They rage. They are in a frenzy. And yet, the Bible says God sits in the heavens and he laughs at them. <laughs> it's just another indication of how sovereign, how supreme, how enthroned, how majestic Jesus, how powerful he is. And oh, don't, don't miss it. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, oh, you, you don't see everything subjected to Jesus now. You don't, you don't see it, but it is. So we got to believe that, that he is sovereign over all of our enemies. And more than that, he is sovereign over the enemies. Forget the nations, forget the guns, forget the wars, forget the nuclear bombs. There's other nuclear weapons that are against us, namely the principalities and powers and rulers and dark places, the demonic forces, the world, the flesh, the devil that constantly bombard God's saints. And he has won the victory over them as well. Lastly, we saw his value, his worth, his treasure by his redemptive solidarity with his people. And here I'm thinking about chapter 2 because chapter 2 um, went to great lengths to prove that Jesus is a man, that Jesus was a, a human person, 
fully man, fully God. That is who Jesus is. And in chapter 2, the chapter goes on and on and on to stress the fact that He's one of us. And how, what a great comfort we can take by knowing Jesus is one of us. This is where the whole language of a sympathetic high priest is coming from. He entered into our experience, lived under the world in which we live. He was tempted in every point, just like you are, except without sin. And yet he, he succeeded where we failed. He's the second Adam. Where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam plunged the whole humanity of the human race into sin, Jesus lifts his humanity out of sin. He is the second Adam. He came to be one of us. We are his house. We are his fellow heirs. We are his family. And, and look at in verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 2. He calls us his brethren. His brethren, that is, we are his brothers and sisters. This is what it means to treasure Christ. He is our brother. It's so incredible. We're so not worthy to be in his family. We're not worthy to be called his brethren. But yet, we are. Now, not only is there this promise of partaking in Christ. There's this primitive plea against, or against apostasy. There's a promise of participation. And then last of all, there's the perpetual threat of provoking God. I want to remind you of something. The warnings in the book of Hebrews are for your good. Oh, I know they seem dark and they seem, they seem fearful and um, all of those things. But they are for our sanctification. These are sanctifying warnings in the book of Hebrews, meant for our good. We need them. We need them. And um, this perpetual threat, therefore, is really seen by two things. There are two things in the text that we should point out. Number one has to do with the duration of our perseverance the duration of our perseverance. Number two, it has to do with the duration of this age. The duration of this age. But number one, the duration of our perseverance. Look, go back to verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You see that? Until the end. The Christian life has many perils in it, but the greatest peril of all is unbelief. Satan knows that, and that's why Satan goes around like a roaring lion. You know that, right? And what, is, what does a roaring lion do? They eat, right? A uh, 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 Christian showed me a video um, a couple days ago of these gentlemen, they're, they're standing outside of the cage of these massive lions, and they're standing on the back of a pickup truck with a slab of meat about this big, and they fling it over this about 15, 20-foot cage, and this lion jumps about 10 feet in the air, and he just grabs this slab of meat and just devours it. It was awesome. 
should put it up on our blog or something. I mean, it was just fascinating. And I thought, that's exactly who Satan is. He's just waiting for that piece of meat to fall over the gate. And he will leap 10 feet in the air to devour it. And what does Satan want to eat? What is his delicacy? What is his favorite meal? Faith. He eats faith like Pac-Man going through, the, going through that maze. Click, 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 click. He just wants to devour our faith. He wants to gobble up our faith, our belief, our trust, our confidence in the Bible, in Jesus, in the gospel. If he can get you to doubt your original assurance, then he can keep you from reaching the end. And that's what we have to take to heart. That's what we have to feel. We've got to feel that. We've got to feel that. When we're saved, we're not just saved one time, converted, and nothing else follows except a testimony where we say, oh, I did that. I walked the aisle. I did the altar call. I signed the prayer card. I filled out the form at the church down the street. I'm fine. No. What does God want of us in this Christian life? He doesn't even want you to do something great for him before you die. That is not it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, he says, those that endure to the end will be saved. Now, the Christian life is not a sprint. If you sprint in the Christian life, you're more like the parable of the sower that springs up quickly and has all this apparent fruit all around it. Oh, look, this, this person is professing the Lord and he wants to go on the mission field and, 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 and she wants to be a missionary and, and, and there's all this apparent zeal right up front. Now, don't accuse me of being overly pessimistic when I say, we'll see. Because I have seen far too many people that start out that way. Loud, exuberant, boisterous, zealous, uh, speaking grandiose things about what they are going to do for, for God, and only to see that sadly, tragically, lamentably peter out in no time. And uh, no, the Christian life is not like a sprint. It's not like a hundred-yard dash. It is a marathon. We are in it for the long haul. When you get done with the race, you should be like Paul. I have finished the race. I have I've finished my course. Finally, there is a crown laid up for me that the Lord will give to me, and not just to me only, but to everybody who loves His appearing. In other words, you are going to be exhausted at the end of your Christian life. It's not going to be a a quick, easy little sprint where you say, oh, that was, that was no problem. Let's do that again. <laughs> now, the Christian life is like a runner who is weary, exhausted. And the, uh, the book of Hebrews says that very thing. He speaks of the fact that, look, one of the things that perseverance and all this endurance language is meant to do, it is meant to strengthen the knees that are feeble and the hands that are weak. 
The Christian life is a life of weakness. It is a life. There is no hyper-spirituality here. There is no super-Christianity. There is no super-Christians. There is no such thing as living on the mountaintop every single day of your Christian life. No, it's going to be a war. Like the old hymn says, my war has been sore and long. And for some of us, it will be like that. It will be sore and it will be long. It will be sore. But notice two things here about this. Not only is there a calling to endure all the way to the end, but there's two ways that the the, the book of Hebrews has already spoken about this. Look back to chapter 3, verse 6 with me. Chapter 3, verse 6, because he uses the same type of language in the same kind of way, but he talks about two different things. So, ready? Verse 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Watch this. Whose house we are, if, there's another powerful if moment, a conditional uh, clause, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Sound familiar? Look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm to the end. These are parallel passages, but there is a nuance here. There's a slight difference. One has to do with our identity in the church, ecclesiastically. The other one has to do with our identity in Christ, Christologically. And so one is dealing with our call to belong to the people of God. That's what it means by we are His house. That means we're in the church, we're in the people of God. And the other one has to do with partaking of Christ, which means we have a saving interest in Him. Now, can you think of any two things that are more important in the Christian life than your your abiding in the people of God and abiding in Christ? I can't think of anything more important. And, And really, one leads to the other. They feed on each other or they will disrupt each other. If you are not abiding in the church... If you do not have some identity in the local church, if you don't belong to a local assembly, if you're not in fellowship, that's why we put such a high premium on church membership. It's not just to check off the Baptist thing, you know. It's so important that we belong to each other, that we are living stones, that we are fit together as a body in a building, an organism, God's temple, and that we all have our place just like our physical body. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. I had a problem this past week with one of my toenails. It's humiliating, uh, humiliating application, but I have to use it because it's real. One of my little toes, as ugly as it is, had a, a nail that was just killing me. And you know what that one tiny little region of my body, that little corner of my toe did? It made me walk weird. I had to literally be walking like this because of a tiny little corner on the toe. Don't ever think that your life in the church doesn't matter. Oh, I don't teach. I don't preach. I don't evangelize. I'm not the open-air preacher. I'm not the one with the tracks. I'm not the singer. I'm not the worship leader. Every member counts. And that's an exhortation to 
everyone as well as to the individual. That everyone should esteem everyone in the local church as important. There is no throwaway saints in the church of God. Listen to me. You matter just as much to the Lord Jesus Christ right now in 2015 as Spurgeon did in 1815. The God of Spurgeon is your God today. His, his eyes are no longer on Spurgeon. Spurgeon's in glory. He's doing fine. God is now looking at you. He's your God. What did Jacob say? God, he has been my shepherd all my life. He has walked with me every day of my life. He's your God. He walks with you every season of life. He is there with you. And you matter to him as much as any eminent saint that you read about or that you see on the internet or that you hear about or whoever is famous or whatever the rising star of evangelicalism is. You, my dear friend, are just as important to God as that person. And don't you ever forget it. Can you tell I'm passionate about that point? Okay. Not only is our perseverance ongoing but our fellowship in the people of God is so, so important. And on top of that, we are being told that we have to hold on to something. Look with me in the text. What are we holding on to? You want to have a part in Christ? You have to hold on to something. What are we holding on to? He says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, a very perplexing phrase, the beginning of our assurance. It's an interesting phrase. Getting into the, Greek, into the Greek doesn't make it any easier. It actually makes it harder. Trust me. About 20 commentaries that bear witness this week of that. And what I think is going on here is that there is a stylistic exegesis that's important. Bear with me. I'm not trying to speak over you. I'm trying to speak... Uh, uh, to you about something that I think the author is doing in the original language, okay? You see verse, verse 12? This is the, this is the, the thread. This is the, the hot issue right here, right? It says, take care, brethren. See that warning, that threat? You see that emphasis? That there not be in any of you, watch this, an evil, unbelieving heart. Why? That falls away. The word to fall away is apostanai, to fall away. But the word that he uses here of holding fast to our, the NASB has assurance, the ESV has confidence, which I don't think is the best translation, but let me make a case for it. The Greek word is hupostasis. Hupostasis is the word where we get the hypostatic union of Christ, right? I've taught about this. Jesus, fully God, fully man. It comes from this Greek word right here in verse 14 of Hebrews 3, hypostasis. And we say, what? What in the world does that? So we hold on to the dual nature? <laughs> well, hypostasis and nature, that's only one possible meaning 
And it's used that way. Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. The author already used it that way. When he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, he is the exact representation of his hypostasis, his nature. But we are not being told, hold on to your original nature. <laughs> hold on to the original nature of something. No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Here, the word translated by the NASB, assurance, I think gets more to it. I think what it refers to is the original conviction. So, not falling away, not apostani, but hupastani, if you would. Not fall away, but hold to assurance. So, what is the answer to doubt? Assurance. What is the answer to apostasy? Perseverance. Assurance, perseverance. And so it means something like our original faith commitment to Christ. Our original conviction that we felt when we came to Christ. Uh, look back in verse 6. See, the ESV translates it confidence because of verse 6. Because it's parallel. We are His house if we hold fast to our confidence. But the problem there is that that is a different Greek word. It is not hypostasis, it is parousia. It's a totally different Greek word, and I think the author meant that. I think the author meant that, so that we would see a different angle, that we would see that we're not just holding on to our confidence, that which gives us boldness in Christ, but we're holding on to our original uh, commitment that we made to Christ. This is what I mean by the Christian life is very simple. Did you believe in Him? Are you in Him? Then stay there. Simple. Are you in the faith? Examine yourself. Are you in Him? Did, did, you, did you become obedient when you first believed? Okay, good. Then keep that original faith up. Don't lose heart of that original faith. Don't lose sight of that. There's nothing, what this is telling us then is that we have to be about the business of caring for our soul. Do you care for your soul? People ask me questions all the time. Hey, pastor, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about doing that. I'm thinking about moving here and going there. What do you think? My number one concern is what is most spiritually advantageous for your soul. Don't talk to me about money. Don't talk to me about weather. Don't talk to me about uh, the neighborhood. Don't talk to me about how safe it's going to be. How spiritually advantageous is that decision going to be for you? That's how we got to think. We, you know, we need to think first about our spiritual well-being. Physical well-being, that's one thing. Spiritual well-being is everything is everything. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Bodily discipline, going to the gym, yeah, that has its merit. You look good. You'd be in shape. But what about your soul? Godliness is profitable for everything. Isn't that amazing what he says there? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, godliness is profitable for everything. 
Wow! There are some things that physical, um, that working out and physical health is not good for. If you get in a head-on collision on the, on the highway, physic- I don't care how buff and tough you are, um, your physical, your physique has its limits. <laughs> but if you are spiritually worked out, you don't need to worry about the head-on collision because you're going to glory. Physical well-being is one thing. Spiritual well-being is everything. Let me move quickly to the last point. Not only is the duration of our perseverance to the end, but the duration of this age. Turn back to verse 15 now because he brings up this verse again, again. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. This is going back to what we read already in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, and then verse 8, of course. And notice, notice, notice. He says it again in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's he doing? Oh, he's quoting Psalm 95 again. Why is he doing that? Because this, remember I told you this last time, this word, today, now has a prophetic meaning to it for all of our lives. The the generation in the wilderness had its today moment. It came and it left. It was that moment that the Exodus generation stood on the precipice of either entering the promised land or failing to enter in. But now that word today is for us. We are now in a today stage. In other words, we're in the valley of decision. It is our time. And as long as it is today, as long as there is opportunity, as long as God is gracious, as long as God is willing, as as long as God is upholding you, as long as God is giving you breath, you stand in this place of today. Today, there is a great potential to either hear His voice or harden your heart. The author of Hebrews is saying, hear His voice. Don't harden your heart. Hear his voice because, and the other thing that today implies is, it will not always be today. There will be a day where that today is over. It will no longer be today. It will be past. Jesus told the Jews when he was preaching, you have missed the day of your visitation. And our lives are now lived in this present age where we have been given such a great privilege of partaking of Christ, of knowing Christ. Is the book of Hebrews teaching that if you do not take advantage of today, then you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. But it's teaching exactly what every other portion of Scripture that talks about this is teaching, that there is a means to the end of perseverance. Like Jesus said, those that endure to the end will be saved. Like like the, the Apostle Paul said, that it is our duty to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling because it is God who is in us both to will and to do. There is that tension. There is that balance, which means this. That assurance that we all crave, that assurance, let me tell you, when you get to a, a low spot, 
when you get really low, when you're just depressed, you can't get out of bed, and you're just wondering, am I saved? Please know that the answer to that question will never be a comfort to you if you do not persevere. You must endure to the end. I think it's a fitting place to end uh, this sermon because, like I said, the book of Hebrews constantly leaves us with these warnings, and they are good for us. They're good for us. They're good for us. Okay, Father, Father, I'm so concerned for your people today. Number one, that there not be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart departing from the living God. In this pretending age that we live in, where so many people are plastic and fake, and so many in the church put on a fake smile, so many people in the church are inauthentic, and we're dealing with plastic Christians. God, would you give us reality Give us authenticity. We don't want to play games. We don't want to play church. We want to know Jesus. We want to be partakers of him. We want to abide in him. We want him to be our treasure. And if he is not our treasure, then drive us to our knees until Jesus is that infinite, glorious, supreme treasure that he really is, that he may be that for us in our lives today. Oh, Father, bless you for giving us Jesus. Bless you for giving us the spirit in our hearts whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Father, would you give assurance to your people, those that may be struggling with the existential reality of, am I saved? That internal battle in the mind, plagued at times by doubt, would you please, by your sovereign hand, as they persevere and not apart from it, would you grant them that blessed assurance? Oh, Jesus' name, amen.